Hi all! This episode of Physical Attraction is brought to you by the American National Standards Institute. Standards make the world go round, and they also dictate what is round. Without standardised measurements and definitions, physicists would be speaking to each other in different languages and would struggle to understand the universe even more than we already do. You can learn about standards in America at the ANSI blog at blog.ansi.org pod to learn about how standards apply to you. Now on with the show. Everybody knows the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to the second part of How to Save the World on the Teotwalki Specials. Last time, we discussed the fears that have arisen in the Teotwalki Specials so far, and they can basically be summarised like this. Our technological capacity to destroy could multiply and end up distributed in a greater number of hands than ever before. Now, if you're not convinced that this is the case, or that anyone would have any kind of motivation to destroy the world, one of the examples that's always interesting to look at is the story of Om Shinrikyo. Shoko Asahara's death cult in Japan managed to achieve incredible levels of power, autonomy, and technological sophistication. At the peak of their powers, they had perhaps a billion dollars at their disposal, and were acquiring chemical and biological weapons, alongside trying to get nuclear weapons from the recently dissolved Soviet Union. The cult's goal, ultimately, was motivated by the same millenarian beliefs that we've discussed so often in these Teotihuacan specials. The aim was quite simply to trigger a thermonuclear war that they viewed as the apocalypse, from which only the cult faithful could possibly survive, as a superior race who were destined to take control of the world. They obtained, for example, botulinum toxin, a dose one five hundredth the size of a grain of sand can be completely fatal to humans, and sarin gas, which they ultimately used to conduct a chemical weapons attack on the Japanese subway. All of that occurred back in 1995, when technology in terms of chemical and biological weapons was far less advanced than it is today. What I'm saying is there's a probability game at play here, in the same way as we see with nuclear weapons and nuclear accidents. Eventually, in a world this vast and with humans as flawed as we are, freak events do occur. Om Shinrikyo was an unusually dangerous and well-organised cult. There aren't necessarily threats like this lurking around every corner that we have no awareness of, but over time, inevitably, things like this will arise. Even Om Shinrikyo still exists today, although they're much diminished from their former heights, and they're operating under a different name. And here, though, of course, all we're dealing is with individuals that might intentionally destroy the world, or at least wreak massive damage on civilization. Yet, in many ways, the accidental threat is even more potent. So in the last episode, we discussed why it might seem like a good idea to go down the one-world-or-none route of a global government that regulates these technologies and prevents certain kinds of research or else utterly monopolises the use of force. This is not as crazy an idea as it sounds, this was the main intellectual force that happened after nuclear weapons were first introduced and people first realised that humans would have the capacity to destroy ourselves. And yet, of course, we've also discussed that maybe the global government approach just opens you up to new and terrible, technologically enabled forms of totalitarianism. But let's say you take these threats seriously. The idea that new technologies, or old disasters, could allow for the destruction of the species. 
Let's also suppose that you believe that the survival of the species, and hence sentient life as far as we know, and whatever wisdom or beauty or value that we've managed to accumulate as humans, is the really important point here. It seems obvious that one low-cost, potentially quite high-reward mechanism of preserving the human species in some way is having a backstop, a backup plan, to ensure that if the worst happens, you'll at least preserve something from the apocalypse. So one thing that people have considered is research into a kind of seed bank, some way of ensuring that humanity and civilization, maybe minus Twitter, survives past whatever existential risks we can throw at it. There's already famously a seed vault in Svalbard, which currently protects seeds of 890,000 plant species from natural or man-made disasters. Quoting their PR material, The purpose of the vault is to store duplicates backups of seed samples from the world's crop collections. Permafrost and thick rock ensure that the seed samples will remain frozen even without power. The vault is the ultimate insurance policy for the world's food supply, offering options for future generations to overcome the challenges of climate change and population growth. It will secure, for centuries, millions of seeds, representing every important crop variety available in the world today. It is the final backup. End quote. So the idea here is that, of course, the genetic information that's associated with these important species, which have had billions of years to adapt and evolve to their environments, it will all be preserved in the event of some apocalyptic disaster. So effectively what you're doing here is saving the end product of millions of years of evolution for a speedier reboot. Could we do something similar with humans? You could imagine that it might be possible to come up with this sort of Doctor Strangelove scheme where you set up bunkers that could preserve certain numbers of people in the event of a huge calamity. In the climactic scene at the end of Doctor Strangelove, uh, all of the various scientists have realised that nuclear Armageddon is inevitable due to a doomsday device that has been programmed to be set off in case a nuclear weapon ever detonates, and they decide that in the world's deepest mineshaft, they might be able to preserve some remainders of humanity who can survive nuclear Armageddon. Given relevant future technology, you could probably even make the whole thing automated. You could have some kind of underground arc where, following some calamitous event on the surface, maybe hooked up to a dead planet switch that kicks into gear when there's no signs of life on Earth. The machines could spring to life, reviving preserved humans, or making new ones to recolonize the planet. Hopefully with enough individuals and genetic diversity to avoid a nasty little bottleneck. You'd hopefully be able to give them a bit of a kickstart over the original human race with some of the knowledge that Humanity 1.0 managed to accrue in the days before the damage. They first survive, then thrive, and eventually colonise other planets, fulfilling that manifest destiny of an interplanetary civilization that everyone seems so keen on. Naturally, it raises all kinds of ethical concerns about who gets preserved, whether it's fair to force these future generations to live in diminished circumstances to clear up after us. But if you zoom out far enough, as this kind of logic requires you to do, then there's a net positive if it allows for the species to survive, and hence for these billions of conscious lives to exist that wouldn't have happened otherwise, that will outweigh any of your puny ethical concerns. Even if things get a little dicey around the catastrophic event, for an interstellar species, the home planet is like an ancient creation myth, or a tiny part of a long and storied history. Therefore, whatever we do is fine, as long as it leads to them. Of course, it depends on what kind of catastrophe you're talking about. A bioengineered pandemic, nuclear war, or runaway climate change might be the kind of thing that a certain number of people could survive in bunkers. You could probably survive a gamma-ray burst or asteroid strike in this way. On the other hand, rogue nanobots, or a malicious artificial intelligence or alien species that wants to destroy the human race, 
could be more difficult for anyone to endure. If the threat is intelligent, they might know about the bunker, and at any rate, they could remain deadly to humans for a very long time after more transient problems would have passed by. Even carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere after a few millennia, even a great deal of the radioactive fallout that you could expect from certain kinds of nuclear weapons is less potent after a few millennia. But that might not be so for malign AI. Yet if your main priority is the survival of the species as a whole, and you could set up and maintain such an insurance policy type system for a tiny fraction of global wealth, why wouldn't you do it? Even if it only will reduce the risk of human extinction by a tiny amount, it still seems like a pretty worthwhile deal. One of the more interesting projects I discovered while researching whether any such project existed was a defunct idea that some billionaires had back in 2015 to send a copy of the Jewish Torah to the moon. Since one can imagine plenty of catastrophes that might involve widespread destruction on Earth but leave the moon unscathed, and we can imagine that it might be soon possible for us to send large amounts of information and physical materials to the moon, that should be well within our current technological capabilities. Interestingly, there's no sign that that project is actually ongoing at the moment, although it still doesn't seem to be too difficult, you'd think, for a few billionaires to send a USB stick with the holy texts on it to the moon. Uh, Alexei Turchin, who's a futurist, just this year expanded this idea in a paper, uh, Surviving Global Risks Through the Preservation of Humanity's Data on the Moon. Samples of human genetic and cultural information could be stored on the moon, where they might remain undisturbed for millions of years. The idea then is that if some cataclysm wiped out or severely damaged the human race, the survivors who rebuild civilization, or intelligent life forms that evolve after us, might be able to access information so that not all would be lost. There's an internet archive next to the Svalbard Seed Center that might store our data online for a thousand years. Memory of Mankind is a project that aims to encode some relevant human information on clay plates and bury them in a salt mine. The Human Document Project aims to find ways to store data for a million years for future historians, while the KO Project wants to build a small satellite filled with data that will return to Earth in 50,000 years as a sort of orbiting time capsule that could potentially allow future descendants of humanity to understand what we're all about. Now, all of these claims might sound a little bit absurd. It may seem strange that people are thinking about this, and it's even stranger to me to read parts in these papers that say, well, how do we hypothetically persuade whatever species comes on Earth after us to bring us humans back to life? You know, we have to persuade them that we want to be brought back to life, that we won't be a threat, that we can be taken care of, that we view life as good, and all this sort of thing. And you may think it's just wildly speculative to spend any time thinking about, well, how do we do things after the apocalypse? How do we ensure that our species is brought back to life? But I think the good counter-argument to saying that this is all wildly speculative, which I agree it is, is that a lot of people spend a lot of time doing things that don't necessarily have much of an impact. These things may have an impact in a very narrow range of circumstances. There's perhaps a probability of one in a million billion that there would be an apocalypse, but in such a way that this data would survive and allow us to be resurrected. Perhaps. Who can say? But if what you do is improve a very, very small number of the worlds by a very, very large amount, you can still argue that what you're doing is making a relatively big impact. And of course, ultimately, the great thing about this kind of solution is that it's potentially low cost. For a few million dollars, in some ways that history might evolve, you could save the human race, which seems like a relatively good uh, cost-to-benefit ratio 
And of course, we all know at the moment that there's a group of rich tech billionaires who lie somewhere on the scale between visionaries and people with more money than sense. And this seems like exactly the kind of project that they'd be interested in. I mean, since it's all about legacy and ego, getting to secure your legacy as a forward-thinking sci-fi benevolent captain of industry and claim that you're securing the future of the human race while you're at it is a pretty good thing to do. It's certainly reflective of the kind of sci-fi that a lot of people were raised on, and therefore the way that they think about the future that they're trying to create. So I'm sure someone will probably get on it fairly soon. This post-apocalyptic bunker human factory that can revive the species from its doldrums, well it might be a nice reassuring solution if what you're concerned about is the million year future of humanity. But if you're concerned about avoiding millions of deaths, unimaginable suffering and misery, and the more or less wholesale destruction of our civilization, then you'll want to head catastrophic risks off at the pass. I'm not going to pretend that I have solutions to each of the problems we've discussed. Thousands of people, far smarter than me, devote their lives to trying to solve just tiny aspects of each one, because that's how scientific knowledge has to work now. It's so broad that people can only afford to focus on tiny aspects of each of these problems, which make collaboration and communication more important than ever. But there are some general things that I think will be helpful, and they start with actually listening to those experts. One of the most frustrating things for me to watch lately, in the US politics and in my home country of Britain, is this war on expertise. So Donald Trump is now negotiating with North Korea, and I think that Martin Pfeiffer, who I talked to about nuclear weapons, and Stephen Schwartz, who I also talked to about nuclear weapons, would both agree that negotiations will always be better than war. But to do so with very little understanding of the terms that are being used, of what denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula is uh, actually means as a concept, is worrying. And you feel if this was informed more by experts, by people who know about policy, history of North Korea, uh, military strategy, anything like that, it might be a slightly more successful negotiation than the one that we're seeing at the moment. And at the same time, he's fired the people in charge of the pandemic response and the response to cyber warfare. Here in the UK, meanwhile, we're being told famously by the education secretary that, quote, people are tired of experts. And we're pulling out of the European Union, which, for all of its flaws, was a great venue to cooperate on things like research into nuclear fusion and nuclear weapons, combating climate change, and dealing across the whole continent scale with problems like pandemics and the future of technology and work. Well, guess what? We can't expect average citizens to know the best course of action against nuclear war, artificial intelligence, cyber warfare, pandemics, nanotechnology, bioengineered viruses, climate change, and natural disasters. These problems cannot be solved by one person. They can only be solved by investing time, money, and human skills into understanding and keeping track of them. They can only be solved by communicating the issues clearly, directly, without bias, without favour, to decision makers. And to do that, we have to get wiser than we are at the moment. Not only do we have to devote more time to thinking about these problems, but we have to devote more effort to communicating what they mean. Instead of top-down impositions from an authority that we're going to find it very hard to agree on, one method that will make it easier to address a lot of the problems we face is ensuring some kind of uniformity of progress. It's the same issue we have in the fight against pandemics. The fact that some countries have poor public health services winds up being a problem for everybody, because if there's a risk of some infectious disease crossing over to a human population because sanitary conditions are poor somewhere, it can affect everyone in a globalised world. 
Systems have become more and more interconnected than they ever were before. We saw this in the financial sector. Instabilities in the US subprime mortgage market led to global turmoil because of the complex ways that things are interconnected, and that led to a global economic downturn in 2007-8. So the fact that people in Florida couldn't pay for their condos was causing people in India and China to be laid off in factories. And since this trend towards interconnectedness is so difficult to reverse, I hope that it will gradually become clear to people that progress being spread out a little more evenly, or at the very least preventing anyone from falling too far behind, is beneficial to everyone. After all, this was a key motivator behind creating the welfare state in Britain. Society as a whole benefits, including the rich, if everyone has enough to eat. Similarly, if progress is a little more universal and resources more available to everyone, then not only is it a more just and better society, but there might be less potential for conflict which could lead to existential risks with nuclear weapons, biotechnology, or cyber warfare. If progress is a little more universal, and threat response a little more well-distributed, natural disasters like earthquakes and supervolcanoes won't disproportionately kill people in poor countries. The earthquake that struck Haiti was 7.0 in magnitude. A similar earthquake in a richer country would have killed fewer people undoubtedly, but in Haiti it has led to hundreds of thousands of deaths due to the relative poverty of that country and the geopolitical inequalities that have led to that country's poverty. If progress is a little more universal, there might be fewer disaffected groups that would want to launch a biotech virus. Restrictions on things like carbon emissions would seem fairer and not unfairly restricting the economic growth of less economically developed countries. So this is part of what I mean when I say that in many ways, the story of the 21st century is going to be one of whether our morality, our society, our intelligence, and yes, our kindness, can keep pace with the rapid evolution of our technology. Because that technology can help us against all of these different existential threats. It can help keep us safe. It can help improve our lives. It can help monitor threats as they come in. It can help in all kinds of ways, but only if it's evenly distributed, only if it's used well, developed well, and with safety in mind. And if we can move towards a more equal society, not just in our own countries, but globally, it will surely be better for everyone, for our species in the long run. Because imagine what the world would be like in the long run if there is no trend towards greater equality. But instead, technology allows certain individuals to be incredibly powerful and wealthy, and potentially even live far longer than the rest of us, and other individuals who no longer have the skills that they can use to get work, have been automated out of jobs. It almost seems like a choice between utopia and dystopia when you phrase it like that. Right now, of course, it could go either way. Of course, there is one final crucial component to this discussion. And this is the simple question of, how do we talk about this? Should we even be talking about it at all? So this is something that is dear to my heart, because people in the climate change world have been grappling with for a very long time, this issue. Recently, people have tried to break away from what's called the five minutes to midnight narrative. This is scientists issuing dire warnings, saying that soon we'll be doomed unless we change our ways with the climate. When a scientist issues a dire warning, it can often get taken out of context. Part of this is by sincere people who are genuinely concerned that everyone appreciates the importance of this issue. And there's also an undercurrent of people wanting to sell newspapers or get clicks. The same reason that most articles about artificial intelligence as a threat have the picture of the Terminator next to them. It's misleading, but it makes people click. 
Climate scientists for years have been talking about our last chance to act and using science to create a picture of what could happen if we don't. But the problem is that it's such a long-term, intergenerational issue. These projections are often for the end of the century. Yet the emissions that we have today lock us into future climate change and remain in the atmosphere for a thousand years. We know that decarbonising the world economy is going to be an immense undertaking that will take decades to accomplish. And if you don't believe this, there's a very interesting story out from the BP Statistical Review. Every year, all of the energy companies do their own reviews on, on energy and its future, effectively. And they give you statistics, like how much of energy use is from wind, solar, natural gas, nuclear, all these kind of things. Always very, very good read. In the last 30 years, how much do you think our energy supplies have shifted from fossil fuels towards renewables? Just come up with figures in your head. 30 years ago, how much do you think was fossil fuels? How much do you think was renewables? And this year, how much do you think was fossil fuels? And how much do you think was renewables? Well, here's the answer. 30 years ago, our global energy use was 88% fossil fuels. Today, it's 85%. Now, I don't know about you, but those aren't the figures that I was thinking of. It seems that additional hype about how fossil fuels are being replaced by renewables and pictures of sunny solar panels and Elon Musk and his Tesla batteries and all this have got people thinking that actually we're further along in the progress than we really are. And we're not. 88% to 85%. And to satisfy the Paris Agreement, we need to bring that all the way down to zero by the end of the century. So we know that decarbonising the world economy is going to be an immense undertaking that will take decades to accomplish. And we know that emissions need to start falling now for us to have any hope of doing that before locking in more damage. But instead, so far, they've flatlined or continued to rise. So when scientists say, this is the last year that we have to act on climate change, what they're really saying is, given that it will take 50 years for us to bring emissions down to zero, we need to start implementing, say, a uniform carbon tax now. But of course, what gets published as a headline is climate doom around the corner, even if the projections are for a few decades from now. So the issue we have is one in communication. If you go too heavy on the doom and gloom, it can go wrong. People might decide that you're exaggerating the threat. Years of warning and they don't see anything too apocalyptic happening. And this is particularly bad in the case of climate change, where the worst impacts don't fall on the people who can do most about it. The worst impacts always fall on the poorest countries, and they're less visible to the people who are sitting in their homes and typing on the internet saying, they all said that sea levels would rise by seven metres and I haven't seen it. If people decide that you're exaggerating the threat, then they might not take you seriously. Or people might become depressed and decide that the problem is too difficult to solve, impossible to solve, and bury their heads in the sand, or decide that we'll just have to adapt to it. And you can see aspects of this in the nuclear weapons fight. ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, won the Nobel Peace Prize last year for, among other things, their work in getting people to sign the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. The United Nations has passed this treaty, and yet everyone is cynical about ICANN winning the Nobel Peace Prize because they think that the goal is impossible. They think that the threat from nuclear weapons will always be with us and can't be mitigated. And people's vision of a post-nuclear world is one where the world is utterly destroyed, rather than one that they might actually have to live in. So people aren't taking this risk seriously, and they're not doing the things that they could do to reduce the risk to all of us from nuclear weapons. Climate change is similar. 
people either think that the threat has been exaggerated because they think that they haven't seen the predictions that were made 10, 20 years ago come true, even though anyone who looks at climate models will tell you that actually the predictions that Jim Hansen made back in 1988 for how much temperature increase we would have had are pretty accurate. You can see this in the field of artificial intelligence, where a lot of people become doom and gloom about this and decide that we need to ban research or else that it's already too late and that humans are doomed as a species. All of these things are not the case. The reality is that everything positive we do means less damage in the future. If we miss the Paris climate goals, for example, it's better to miss them by a little than a lot. Establishing some basic principles for how research into AI and biotechnology would be conducted is surely better than banning this research altogether. And taking nuclear weapons off high alert and reducing tensions between nuclear armed states is better than just saying, well, we have to deal with the status quo because nothing will ever change it. But motivating people to do everything they can to help in this endeavour is a really difficult balancing act. You have to balance between optimism, which risks complacency, and pessimism, or if you're pessimistic, realism, which risks despair. So the field of existential risk studies that we've spent so much time with recently has come in for criticism by a group of people who you might call the new optimists. Steven Pinker is key amongst this group. And the essential point that many of them are trying to make is a true point that on the whole, the world has got better in the 20th and 21st centuries. And this is perfectly true. For the vast majority of people, life is better in a lot of ways. In 1820, most of the world lived in what could today be considered extreme poverty. Now it's less than 10%. Child mortality has declined. Healthcare has improved. And since 1945, there have been fewer wars. More and more people are better educated than ever before. The quality of life for the vast majority of people has improved over the last century. And we're starting to see social and civil rights movements taking place across the world. Gradually, things are getting better. There are also new problems that our ancestors didn't have to deal with, but I think a rational observer in most places would prefer to live now than in the Middle Ages. Talking about the evils and the perils of technology of modernity, therefore, is not the same as saying that we want to go back to the 16th century. And we should certainly keep in mind how far we've come before declaring that modern life is rubbish, or looking at the past through rose-tinted specks. But Pinker and others, in defence of their optimistic thesis, feel the need to downplay catastrophic risks. But conflating this general optimism about the way things are going for the species as a whole, with a conclusion that there aren't new and bigger risks than ever before, is an error in judgement, and it could be a colossal one. We're talking about the probability of events that haven't happened yet, and that can carry on increasing even as things continue to go well. We can't fall into the hindsight fallacy. Just because we've avoided risks so far doesn't mean that this was in any way inevitable. Part of why I'm so fascinated with nuclear weapons and the Cold War is putting yourself in the shoes of people who lived at the time, the first time we invented a technology that threatened an unimaginable, swift catastrophe for the species. Look at how close they thought we came to annihilation. Look at how close we did come. The first time around, these things did not seem inevitable, because they were not. Survival is not guaranteed. We could have just got lucky. And the fact that a smaller fraction of people than ever before lives in extreme poverty is great, and should be celebrated, as well as motivating us to do something to lift the remainder out of poverty. But it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the risks of a technologically enabled catastrophe. The fact that in the 1940s and 50s the majority of the world's population could read and write for the first time, that was good, but it didn't have any impact on the fact that 
nuclear weapons were invented in those years. These are two completely different things to talk about. So quality of life can improve, but the existential risks that you're exposed to can also improve. It's a simple fallacy. The two can be true at the same time. We can be living in the best time for humans to be alive, with the most advantages for the most people across a wide swath of metrics that we've ever had, and it can also be the most dangerous and risky time for the human species. And in fact, the two are completely intertwined in an obvious way. It's because of what you might call dual-use technologies that give power to do both good and evil. An interconnected world can improve cultural understanding and reduce conflicts. It also means that a collapse of a mortgage market in the US can become a global financial crisis that wrecks economies across the world. New technologies give us new power to lift people out of poverty and improve our own lifestyles. After all, this is what electricity has done. And maybe, eventually, they allow us to fulfil that dream of living lives of leisure. But electricity production has been driven by fossil fuels, and that has created new problems and risks. And some of these risks might be existential risks. Do the developments in artificial intelligence to date mean that the world will be inevitably destroyed by a misaligned AI? Of course not. Do they make this probability more likely? Kind of hard to argue that they don't. In the same way that our discoveries of physics and the invention of nuclear weapons, they didn't guarantee anything. But they made more and devastating deadly wars more likely than the world has ever known, because they made them a real possibility. But nuclear weapons are different in kind to the threats we might face in the future. If destructive power falls into a greater and greater number of hands, such as through nanotech, biotech, or certain kinds of AI, then we need to be certain that these agents can be trusted. The following is from an article by Phil Torres, who listeners will remember we interviewed on existential risks. He says, quote, Thinking about this situation more abstractly, John Sotos has recently crunched some numbers to show the distribution of offensive capabilities could all but guarantee civilizational collapse. For example, a 1 in 100 chance that only a few hundred agents releasing a pandemic-level pathogen yields almost inevitable doom within 100 years or so. If the total number of people who can cause global-scale harm rises to 100,000, then the probability of any one such person releasing a pathogen must be less than 1 in a billion for civilization to survive a single millennium. In other words, low probabilities can add up pretty quickly as the total number of individuals capable of mass destruction increases. End quote. Past performance is no indicator of future results. And sadly, it seems there's no shortage of people who might be willing to pull this kind of trigger. As Phil Torres points out in his rebuttal to Stephen Pinker's thinking, which I'll link to in the show notes, it's wrong to think that people concerned with catastrophic risks are doom and gloom types. If you were a hidebound pessimist and you saw that technology was the source for many potential risks, you'd be a Luddite. You'd want to destroy technology or prevent it from advancing any further. But most of these people aren't. They call for safe artificial intelligence, not none. Safe biotech, rather than none. Safe uses of nanotechnology, rather than none. Many are convinced that the whole reason we should be so worried about human extinction now is because of the vast developments and the fast developments that they expect in technology, and because they feel that it would scupper our inevitable path towards becoming more than human, a sci-fi-esque species that spreads amongst the stars. If anything, I think many people who worry about this kind of stuff are too optimistic in their projections for technology. I would urge us to accept and consider the shades of grey, the possibility for futures that we can't imagine, that are weird compromises between sci-fi dreams and the problems of today, and avoid millenarian thinking that everything either leads to paradises or the apocalypse. 
Yet, as we try to avoid millenarian thinking that everything either leads to paradises or the apocalypse, we should still use these utopias and dystopias to motivate our thoughts about what we can do to ensure that we end up in one and not the other. The practical actions that we can take in our own research and in our own lives to think about the genuine ways that this great, vast human experiment could be threatened, and then deal with them. The criticism of Pinker and others does serve to make a valuable point in our communication strategy. Whenever we raise awareness of this or that threat or risk, rather than ending it with doom and gloom, we should talk about the good things that we can do to alleviate these risks, to help people understand them, and to create a more resilient society. And the opposite is of course true. Every time we develop a new technology, every time there's some new renewable energy breakthrough, I think it should be accompanied with that statistic, that so far, renewable energy has reduced from 88 to 85% the amount of our dependence on fossil fuels. I think that both your apocalypse and your utopia should be tempered with a little bit of reality. But imagining these doom-laden scenarios is not just an exercise in scaring ourselves. Instead, it's the best way to make sure that our technology is safe. Even if the risks that I've spent months discussing are all exaggerated, society needs a few chicken littles who think the sky is falling in, because a thorough investigation of whether or not the sky is falling in costs little and has enormous potential benefits. We should highlight the problems and pitfalls of new technologies. We should indulge our overactive imaginations. If you only realise the problem with some new technology after it's widespread, it's already too late. You can argue it through a sort of Pascal's wager, even if you don't like the original logic of that. It's the same logic that has allowed us to evolve. If you're wrong to be cautious about new developments, the worst that happens is you lose some time when you could have benefited from that technology. If you're wrong to be gung-ho about them, the consequences could be far worse. And even if these technologies are years, decades or centuries away from being dangerous in the way that we might imagine they could be today, the safety problems themselves could take years, decades or centuries to solve. We lose nothing by thinking about how these technologies might be made safe before we invent the technologies. In fact, it's crazy not to do that. The most compelling part of Pinker's argument is the idea that, if we ladle on the doom and gloom too heavily, we might not respond to the risks particularly well. People might become despondent and feel the species is doomed, and that's a state of mind that doesn't motivate action. And that makes the risks in turn less likely to be addressed, if they are real. He argues that sowing fear about hypothetical disasters far from safeguarding the future of humanity, can endanger it. To this I'd say a few things. First off, people having a serious reasoned and thoughtful discussion about potentials and pitfalls about the future of our species and the challenges we face cannot be a negative and bad thing. I don't think these things are taken seriously enough, and they're certainly not well understood enough by the vast majority of people. There are lots of people doing great work to explain the threats posed by climate change, nuclear weapons, superintelligent AI, whatever else. But existential risks still seem to be pretty low on the priority list for governments who are focused on re-election, and corporations who are focused on profit. So it's up to us as citizens to pressure people to do the right thing about this. Secondly, I'd say the mature, responsible response to a challenge or something scary that you face isn't to give up, but to take concrete action that might help you to succeed. If we assume that we are the kind of people who will, when we're facing real dangers, bury our heads in the sand or lapse into despondency, then we're not giving ourselves the best chance to deal with these problems. And consider the alternative. Should climate scientists not raise the alarm about climate change because it will upset people? If people studying artificial intelligence think that it could have a negative impact, should they just carry on regardless, 
because fear, uncertainty and doubt could hamper the progress of the company? If we overstate risks to the point where people think doom and gloom is inevitable, then we've certainly failed. And it's certainly true that assessing the risks from superintelligent AI or nanotechnology or any other future technology that doesn't exist yet, it's very, very difficult to do. Our own internal cognitive biases work against us here. Studies conducted by Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman and others have shown that by describing a scenario in more detail, people automatically feel that it's more likely. We're not good at assessing probabilities in our day-to-day lives, let alone when they involve facts that we don't know yet or don't understand well. So perhaps the risk from AI or nanotech or biotech is very small, but assuming that it's zero is a pretty dangerous game to play. Some people assume that it would be impossible to make a nuclear bomb, yet here we are, perpetually dangling on the precipice, with most major cities in the world a few bad decisions away from annihilation. I hope that a reasonable study of everything that's out there would lead someone to conclude that the risks are real, even if they disagree about how important they might be. If the alternative is to say, the world's never ended before, and more people can read than ever before, so why should we believe that things are bad now? Then you run the risk of making a terrible miscalculation. Our strategy should always be to emphasise what can be done to help fix the problems, and the agency that we have to fix the problems. Learning about this, even a little, has taught me that the biggest risks to our survival are human-made risks. These risks are an inevitable flip side to the new power that we are harnessing with our technology. We built them, and we can take them apart. The future is ours, if we can be smart enough and wise enough to keep it. And yet at the same time, I can't help but think about the sci-fi utopias I enjoyed reading when I was a teenager. There was something ever so strange about the futures that worked. In so many of them, it seemed that the solution, the way things didn't end in war or tragedy or strife, was to give up some part of what makes us human. In the far-flung future utopias, we were more advanced, enlightened. A spiritual transformation, perhaps, that smoothed away all the rough edges. People weren't so prone to violence and anger. They'd outgrown irrational beliefs. Their motivations were not our motivations. Their worlds looked nothing like ours. They've reached a steady state, a final stage of existence, while our world still bubbles and broils away, teetering on all these different cliff edges. Often, these utopias seem pretty dull and lifeless as a result. Squabbles when you're armed with spears and stones don't threaten the survival of your species. When you have nuclear weapons or superviruses, you can't afford to be so flawed. And yet it seems so clear that we still are. And moreover, we don't know what we would be if we weren't. When Fermi looked to the skies and saw that there was no evidence of alien broadcasts and wondered why, in a universe that may well be teeming with life, we could see no evidence of it anywhere. His theory was that perhaps intelligent species tended to destroy themselves, resolving Fermi's paradox. The window between a species becoming technologically advanced and a species destroying itself could be very small indeed. And we could all be in that window right now, as we speak. A fragile place to be, floating on a pale blue dot. What we do with our time here is up to us. Thank you for listening to this Teotihuacan series on physical attraction. I think we'll probably come back and explore some more of these issues and interview some more guests and talk about breaking news developments that might relate to them in the future. But right now, the plan for the show is as follows. I'm going to take a week off to give me some time to research and write, and then we're coming back with a four-part biographical series on Isaac Newton. Until next time, then, there's plenty of things you can do if you've enjoyed the show. You can contact us at www.physicspodcast.com, where there's a contact form that we respond to. Also there, you'll find a PayPal and Patreon link where you can help support the show. 
if you'd like to. You've probably heard at the top that we have a new sponsor now. It doesn't quite cover our hosting costs, but every little helps towards uh, making this a more sustainable thing for me to do. One thing you can certainly do to help the show is engage with us on social media. We're on Facebook at Physical Attraction and on Twitter at PhysicsPod. And probably the best thing you can do that doesn't involve spending any of your own money is to tell your friends about the show if you've enjoyed it. Leave ratings and reviews where you find podcasts, that kind of thing. Every person who listens makes this a more enjoyable enterprise, I think. And hopefully I can uh, engage in discussions with you guys. Uh, One thing I've been hoping to do for a long time is have a listener questions episode, but for that I need to gather some listener questions together. So using the contact form or social media is a great way to do that. So next week will be a gap. I might put up an Autocracy Now episode if people don't mind uh, to give you something to listen to in the meantime. The Stalin show is still going at Autocracy Now and you can subscribe to that. Follow that at www.autocracynow.libsyn.com And then we'll come back with Isaac Newton. Until then, take care of yourselves and do the right thing. You better make some preparations There's no time for Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. Do get ready.